for June 6th, 2022. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 727. From being a maverick to being the maverick. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we feel the need, the need to subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your wingman and will be your wingman anytime, as long as that time is every Monday morning at 12 midnight Eastern. <laughs> I'm your host, Matt Rather. Uh, I am here with my good friends, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. Mr. Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Reporting for duty. And joining us, Mr. Ryan Sheely. Hello, Ryan. You're not my dad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think you can tell what we're podcasting about this week. We're podcasting about a man, but not just any man, the most skilled man in his field. He's struggling with revenge, with regret, not revenge, regret. He's struggling with, you know, what, what might have been the road not taken, the, the life unlived. You know, he's, he's struggling with, um, the consequences of his choices, creating a lot of quantity quantum realities and it becomes a kind of uh, multiverse if you will it becomes a multiverse and it's not sane this is not a sane multiverse we're talking about top gun maverick <laughs> that's right uh or uh or well we can we can get into what some other wait, subtitles wait, wait, wait. might be later well, well uh, let me say, like, we're talking about a man, a man who's living in the desert alone, um, looking uh, uh, looking over the son of his dead war buddy from a distance. Um, but we're not talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi, which was talked about last week. We're talking about Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. Good. Uh, Ryan, I'm glad that, that you're here. Pete always takes me to task every week for trolling the, uh, trolling the listeners. Oh, by... I know. I, I, I am one of those trolls listeners <laughs> and it's just glorious. And I also, you know, Pete so diligently last week, uh, upfront said, we are talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I say this week, we are talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi in a way, <laughs> in a way we're still talking about Obi-Wan. Cause I don't know about you guys, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about Morbius tonight. <laughs> In a way, we're it's Morbin times. Morbin times. Mor- <laughs> <It's Morbentine. laughs> uh, I like, uh, yeah. I, mean, I I think that Morbius. It was a bold move to put Morbius back into the theaters, but it uh, they were rewarded with the highest uh, Memorial Day opening weekend in history. And uh, congratulations to Morbius for winning the box office, not only in its first release but in its in its second. No, we're talking about uh, we're talking about Top Gun Maverick. But before we talk about Top Gun Maverick, I I think that we have to do a little talking about the classic art film uh, known as Top Gun. Uh, Mark, I understand you saw this film at an inappropriately young age. I'm actually not sure when I saw it early enough, but like... It's so, before, it was like before, one or two years old before your memories yeah. were fully formed. I was, a, I was a tender age of four when this movie came out, so I definitely not see it like, you know, contemporaneous with it exploding on the scene. However, as a, it's not like a middle schooler in the 1990s, um, Top Gun, you know, Tom Cruise's Maverick, him and along with like Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones and Han Solo were like the icons of American masculinity of that time, right? You think about what does it mean to be cool? What does it mean to be a man? You think about aviator sunglasses and that bomber jacket. And let me tell you, the cool kids in school, they wore the bomber jacket. And I knew that meant that they had seen 
this awesome movie about fighter planes called Top Gun. And like, I'm not again, I'm not sure when I actually saw the movie, but really because of that cultural context that I, I developed kind of a lifelong love of aviation and then like combined with um, the Star Wars movies, uh, you know, I've come to love like that kind of flight simulator and space combat, quote unquote, simulator genre of video games. Um, and I'm still kind of obsessive to this day. So, yeah, got a little bit of Maverick inside of me. I, I mean, also won my Star Wars Squadron's competitive match today, this day before we recorded this. Recorded uh, six kills. I would like to have you all know. Oh, so you're an ace. Of- I am an ace through and through. That's wonderful. I think as a style, as a like, uh, we we don't talk enough these days about the the style icon aspect of the the original Top Gun. And when I saw Miles Teller roll up in his t shirt and uh, like Aloha shirt over the t shirt into the bar, uh, the hard deck in Top Gun Maverick, I I was you know uh, not only did he look uncannily like Goose, but I I realized uh, that our friend Josh actually took a page from this style yes. of uh, of this film. I wasn't even aware of it at the time that's how you know it's like asking the fish uh the fish what is what is water pete do do you have a formative experience with uh with the top gun extended universe sure i think unlike some of you guys my first encounter with the top gun oeuvre was the top gun nintendo video game Mm. which uh i don't know if you guys played this game no yes uh, yes 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 (laughs) i'm right there with you how far did you get pete were you able to land on the freaking like third carrier or did you just crash into the side every time yes the top gun video game is a game about how planes go up but they don't come down (laughs) it's a a thrilling dogfighting game that then requires you to do like fairly precise monitoring of your air instruments like your airspeed and your altitude and uh uh, and and your approach angle and all that stuff as you come in to land on the aircraft carrier. And, of course, you would complete the level and crash and complete the level and crash. Uh, and I think that it told me a little something about pushing my limits. Uh, and, 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 and also the, uh, the human reality of like, hey, if you just do this thing exactly the way the numbers tell you to do it, you will be successful. If you give like 99 humans that direction, uh, 99 of them will fail 99% of the time <laughs> because nobody reads an altimeter uh, except for a, a real pilot, I suppose. And then I would say that uh, I do remember that the Top Gun soundtrack was one of my 11 Columbia House CDs <laughs> nice. that, I, that I got Good with choice. that little deal with Asmodeus. <laughs> so, um, so I, and I still listen to it on a regular basis. And I did eventually watch the movie, but it kind of pales in comparison to the struggle against gravity. Uh, too much, too little, too too early, too late, as such. Nice. Uh, Ryan, you also were a, a player of this video game? I, I was, um, and I think I got very frustrated, and I remember there was a time where I decided to switch to the Airwolf video game, which is like <laughs> basically the same, but you didn't have to land on an aircraft carrier. You could just fly around and shoot things. So yep. it was definitely superior. It had a, the different digitized 8-bit um, theme song, uh, and they're both great, though. They're both really good versions, and I did... I, I imagine... I, I actually was trying to conjure some memories, and there's definitely a full play through of the Top Gun uh, Nintendo game on YouTube, and I'm sure Airwolf is there as well. Um, yes. But I, I think that that followed watching it. So we, I, I, I have a memory of watching it when my um, 
family lived in in Utah, which was from 1987 to 1992. So the ages of about five to nine. So on the young side, and I, I the other memories I have of Top Gun. So our family um, TV, our family room was in the basement, but the um, nice stereo that had big speakers uh, was upstairs in the living room. And there were certain movies for which we would do a movie night and bring uh, the TV up and hook it up to the the nice speakers and Star Wars was one of these and Top Gun was the other one to really get that um, that AV sound. The other thing I remember about this though is unlike uh, Star Wars, uh, there is a sex scene in um, Top Gun and I remember that my my dad and we, we, we would, like Top Gun was a favorite and he would stand in front of the TV during the sex scene <laughs> um, and so I, I, I with Take My Breath Away have a like very strong association of my dad's back <laughs> and just him like blowing boxing out uh the inappropriate content uh, um and and it was it was definitely a whole um it was a it was a four quadrant movie i don't get uh, um in our family of of my dad my mom me and my younger brother everyone was uh was in on it so i think that that i i think that it was an interesting because so much about top gun and top gun maverick are about generations and you know parents and children fathers and sons um i i feel like the experience of watching that is very for me bound up with the content as well mm. i uh i have a story about uh you know watching top gun as a teenager that i i think might shed some light on my background a little bit and you might understand me a little bit by understanding where i came from uh we i my homeroom teacher in high school was one of the film teachers um Yes, we had more than one. And, uh, he was, uh, he thought that homeroom was a, a waste of time. We just had to go there and sort of check in every day or once a week, I guess, for, for, uh, 10, 15 minutes. And so in these weekly chunks, we would, uh, we would watch 15 minutes of a movie on, you know, the big screen in the screening room in, in high school, um, which is a thing we had. And so we started, uh, Top Gun, uh, which was one of the films that we did this way. And I, I feel like the original Top Gun is actually, it's, it's not a terrible way to enjoy it in little, you know, a morsel sized chunks of, uh, of, you know, fighter pilot, uh, fighter pilot action and, uh, homosociality. And I think that like, um, you know, I, I, I think that a lot of my, my perspective on the film was formed in those, in those 15 minute chunks. Anyway, we were watching the, I, I rewatched it this, uh, uh, this week. And so I was, uh, called to mind the, those, those heady young days, formative days. And I remember that the, the, it starts with all the kind of the yellowish, uh, you know, stuff of the yellowish tinted f- photography of the the fighter jets on the deck of the aircraft carrier, and they're going to take off. And you know, there are people running around. They look very busy. It looks sort of important, and like there are a lot of a lot of a lot of danger and stuff. And and then they uh, they take off. Um, and then the, the rock music starts. And, uh, when the, fir- the, when Tom Cruise's plane enters, uh, the frame, it comes in, it, it penetrates, if you will, the frame from the, the right, uh, side and it comes across, um, the frame proudly, uh, progressing until it sort of juts about, you know, 80% of the way into the frame. And, you know, this film teacher, um, who is a kind of a young, cool film teacher paused the, the, whatever we had laser disc, probably paused it, looked at us and said, no one can ever tell me that is anything but a big erect penis. 
and uh, then said class dismissed, and we all we all uh, went along our way with the uh, with the uh, you know thing. So uh, we uh, we all remember Top Gun in a slightly in a slightly different way, colored by the the lens of of memory and uh, of nostalgia and maybe of regret for uh, you know the the choices we made. And, and what they cost us and, and, uh, you know, cost our, our, uh, weapons officers, you know, but, uh, but we, we come here to celebrate Top Gun Maverick, the, the new, uh, entry in this franchise, which is, you know, so many things, but, uh, among, um, other things, it's an action movie. And I know, Pete, you have a very specific criterion for what makes a good action movie. This is why, uh, your favorite film is uh uh star trek beyond of <laughs> of all films um because of the consonance between the visual metaphor oh sorry i'm giving i'm giving it away this is why your favorite film uh, uh the greatest masterpiece that you can po- probably name is uh is star trek beyond um tell us a little bit about why you uh why you think so highly of star trek beyond I, I am I'm just imagining Ryan grinning at you trolling me with this as I press my forehead with the first three fingers of my right hand and rub gently back and forth. I like Star Trek Beyond a lot. It's not my favorite movie of all time, but I think it's underrated. Okay. No, not, not your favorite. Greatest. Greatest. Oh, I greatest. Mean, Sorry. Greatest. Yes. Yeah. The best movie ever made ever is Star Trek, the Star Trek one with the Beastie Boys song. Yes, definitely, 100%. Um, uh, but you know, it is also a Justin Lin movie. I love Justin Lin movies. Okay, you you are correct. I will say this. I love it, and I I feel the effect of it, I believe, in action movies when the composition of the action is related geometrically in some way, you know, shape, direction, uh, I mean, sometimes maybe color, but, but generally shape, direction, orientation, movement uh, to the core themes of the movie, and in particular – the core aspects of the protagonist, right? The, the sort of, uh, or protagonists, the, the idea of like, okay, this is an action movie with a hero in it. Why should I be invested in all the stuff that's blowing up and moving around? Well, because it's telling me something or relating in some sort of poetical or interesting way to what's happening with the people who are doing the action. Uh, an example, of course, Star Trek Beyond, Captain Kirk. It's a movie about Captain Kirk being lost in space, uh, both literally and metaphorically, literally in that the starship is beyond, you know, the area of space they're comfortable navigating in. And there are uh, action sequences that are in zero gravity and in sort of flipped around geometrical dislocation, uh, disorientation, uh, motorcycles jumping over kind of Alice in Wonderland, mushroomy kind of things like that kind of stuff. Uh, and another example, of course, is Cars Can't Fly, Fast and the Furious 7, uh, which is, um, you know, kind of about the coming to rest of Paul Walker and driving a uh, supercar or hypercar out of a Dubai office window and watching it plummet to the earth. Uh, Top Gun Maverick. OK, so I love this movie for the composition of the action sequences and how they related to what the main characters were doing and how it made me feel invested in the plane scenes. And in here's what I'll tell you. I, I felt or thought what I concluded based on what it was making me feel as I was watching it. I would call this movie Top Gun Heaven and Earth is what I would name it because the secondary story happening under the Maverick story to me seemed to be a mythopoetic story about kind of elemental realms, uh, right? You have the sky or the heavens 
which is where Goose is, the sort of where the legacy of old Top Gun is, the sort of things that have passed into history, the people who have died, the sort of exaltation and transcendence beyond the mortal plane. It's where Maverick has sort of been for 35 years as he's been kind of beyond the veil, right? Pushing the envelope of of kind of the edge of existence is that's heaven. That's the sky, right? And that's so powerfully painted for us in the test pilot sequence of this movie at the beginning with that long arc, you know, through the, through the upper atmosphere shot from space, right? By, no doubt by, uh, uh, I'm just imagining James Cameron up there with a camera. I know he has nothing to do with this movie, but that's just the image that comes to mind of like shooting that, that flight from space. Um, and so there's heaven, right? And then there's earth, which is the, the sort of the bodies of the people, right? And, and they're sort of, they're sort of, uh, their sensuality, their sort of um, griminess, their their homosociality, their um, all of their aspects that are related to their animal nature, their mortal nature, right? The sort of the difference between real people and legends. Then the real people are like super duper real. All and the sense, not in the sense of they're super realistic, but the things that make people, you know, mortal people that a humanist would have to explain to a Platonist as defensible, right? Like if the idea is like, oh, there's ethereal ideas that are beyond all concept and those are the best things. And it's like, well, what about real people? Oh, they poop, they have sex, they do all this really uncomfortable, sinful stuff. How do you explain it? It's like, well, it's also awesome, right? And that's the earth. That's like the the grimiest part of the people that, you know, they're, we've, you know, it's like in gravity where Sandra Bullock like crawls out of the mud, right? That That's humans. And then there's the sea, which is love, right? And uh, and the sea and Penny is the sea. Right. And so so in that sense, it felt to me like Top Gun Maverick is the story of a person from Earth. Right. A spirit from Earth who has passed beyond the veil into heaven, but is cast out or called back to Earth and has to reorient himself on Earth and connect with the people of the Earth who need him, but who he feels incapable of connecting with, in particular with the next generation. And to do this, he has to fall in love. The the sky has to fall in love with the ocean in order to understand the Earth so that they can all impregnate the Earth at the end, right, by, like, driving down the trench and dropping the bomb into the uh, into the vulva that, uh, that, that sort of blooms with success. And then they, of course, have to, like, get out by pushing the envelope and kind of approaching the sky some examples to show you to say i'm not crazy about this when maverick and rooster right are kind of descending in their rivalry uh in their sort of you know bitchy moment in their early uh their early drill and they and they twist down from the sky they go in a spiral around each other which to me really looked like a double helix Right. It's like, okay, so the the connection between the heaven and the people of the past and the dead and the earth and the people of the now is the DNA that's passed along this giant strand of DNA that connects like the dead and the living. Uh, And and Maverick is both literally and figuratively DNA related because, you know, he's the father goose. Right. And then there's uh, and then there's the, uh, the the actual DNA of being a fighter pilot in a metaphorical sense, which Maverick is totally part of. And 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 like there's all sorts of other examples of this. So when somebody pushes the boundary between the earth and the sea or pushes the boundary between the sky and the land or falls from the sky to the land. Um, and and so much of the flying is about that. But anyway, I'll pause and 
and and see what uh what other people have to say. No, I, I think I, I I see it, and you know, um, after I, you shared some of this in in the notes, um, in our in our back channel, and then um, and between then and now, I watched rewatched some of the original Top Gun, and it's some of it's there as well, but in different ways, and and I it, what it reminded me is in this kind of the dichotomy of the you know the heaven and and earth is you know for a pilot um and for for maverick in particular you know earth is where you go to die right and yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um and and you know that the other counterpoint to the um the double helix spiral with rooster is the the spin um that was fatal to rooster's father to goose in the first movie which is a flat spin is just the single plane um gets caught in the um the 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 jet stream or the kind of um you know it gets it gets they basically their engine burns out and they go in this flat spiral down and and they land um in the uh in the ocean right they actually that that crash is a crash land into the ocean um which uh kills goose so there is a little bit of the like that descent is bad but like is bad so there is a, i think there's a little bit of a um learning to love the ocean again um and kind of mm. see that generative piece and then the other um a, a really micro aspect of this um this playing with kind of levels and with um altitude um is is comes in with with Iceman. and so in the um original top gun it's really notable um how much taller Val Kilmer is um, than Tom Cruise. And it's really played up in all of their interactions because they stand very close to one another and you can <laughs> see um, he, that he's looming over him and glowering down on him. Um, and then in the scene where um, uh, in, in Maverick, where Maverick goes to visit Iceman um, and when it's learned that his um, you know, cancer has returned, um, for the, the bulk of that conversation, um, Iceman remains seated and, and uh, Maverick remains standing, right? And the, there's a um, and uh, 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 the the altitude has um, has shifted, and he sees you know he's seeing his friend plummet right, and and is, is and so there's a coming to terms with that um, as well. So I think it's once you have that key, it unlocks a number of other uh, things, and and uh, there's just interesting you know resonances to the first movie as well. Yeah, that's really cool. I another example now that you mentioned Iceman, I'll just bring up because I think it starts to flesh out some more aspects of the movie. Is you know later on when they go to the target, and I want to hear what everyone has to say about the place that they're bombing, which is of course not named. <laughs> um, but when they go, they're to, bombing Lake Tahoe. I yeah, believe they're bombing Lake Tahoe. They're blowing up George Clooney's house. Is what they're doing. They go. They're bombing Lake. That's Lake Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo. Como. Not Cuomo. Not Lake Andrew Cuomo. Um, but uh, they are. They're bombing Lake Tahoe. They go there, and it's this place where the Tomcat is, and it's this place where Rooster gets to see Maverick be who he was when he was his age. And it all takes place over this blanket of white, which is snow, but feels to me like they've gone into the realm of the dead, right? They've passed into the place where the legends live, into heaven, and it looks like they're walking on clouds, but they're also walking on ice. And so this uh, this idea that Iceman is the sort of is a sort of heavenly figure who's become more associated with heaven, and ice is kind of associated with the past, right? And and with the sort of legacy of the past, which is ultimately the thing that Rooster needs to come to terms with in this movie uh, more than he needs to learn 
specifically who Maverick is. He needs to come to terms with, you know, the past of what happened in a symmetrical way to what Maverick needed to do at the end of the first movie, sort of. But anyway, sorry, uh, I just wanted to throw in there that, uh, you know, there are clouds, there are there's there's a blue sail on the ship, right? There's this yeah. idea that to be to be better, you need to become more of the thing that you are. In order for the boat to go faster on the water, it has to lower a blue sail, right? In order for the yeah. the Earth people to to triumph in their battle, they need to stay as close to the Earth as possible, right? They need to push the envelope of being close to the Earth, right? Well, um, and and following up on the ice scene, what happens after that? It's like that's almost like also the restart screen because right after that, what happens? Rooster becomes Goose, right? He gets in an F-14 behind Maverick and operates his his systems um, and, is, and is his backup, right? And so, but kind of to become himself uh, and become like this, like, you know, who he is relative to, to Maverick, he has to pass through being his dad and kind of accepting the ways in which he is his dad in that relationship. Yeah, but let me just come in here for a second and let, we can keep going this theme or go in a different direction uh, if we'd like, but like, we, we have to, first of all, Spoilers for this movie, Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> for, for the reasons that are sort of convoluted but oddly plausible, they find their way into an old F-14 Tomcat at the end of the movie, and it is freaking awesome. Okay, <laughs> right. So, but I, I wanted to call out that particular thing right there about like the 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 craft of this movie and how the nostalgia play is at such a higher level than other similar movies that we've seen of this ilk. Uh, in particular, The Force Awakens. Right. Where um, also a nostalgic and very beloved vehicle makes a triumphant return there and is supposed to symbolize all these sorts of things. Yet it is just purely by coincidence on the same backwater planet where our plucky main hero uh, needs a ride. Right. Um, in, in this movie, um, the, the existence of an F-14 is called out, uh, kind of foreshadowed. Um, almost like it was a throwaway little bit of, uh, um, of of detail in the part of the mission briefing, like in the first act of the movie. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the characters find their way to this old F-14. Um, it is operational. They manage to take off on a bombed runway and shoot down a fifth generation, a super jet fighter uh, that is, you know, much more modern than that. Um, I'm sorry, I just had to like, you know, just like have a little bit of a moment to fanboy over the F-14, its existence and how well they put it into the movie. Um, I just absolutely loved it. They deal well with with, uh, making you not think the foreshadowing is foreshadowing by actually making it pay off immediately where one of the uh, where one of the like the younger pilots takes a dig at, at Tom Cruise for his age, and you think, okay, that's the payoff for that. But but you know, there's a long game going on mm-hmm. uh, going on as well to get this to get this airplane in the the third act. Yeah. This is my favorite scene in Anton Chekhov's Three Sisters, the one where uh, where Maria Sergeyevna Kulgina has to uh, get an F-14 Tomcat and blow up a whole bunch of eggs. <laughs> We'll, we'll never they we'll, the cherry orchard. Oh, no, they bombed it there in the middle of the stage the whole time, and you're like, "Why is there a giant fighter plane in the middle of the stage of this checkoff flight?" But then you know that one of them is going to get that uh, fighter plane and it's going to blow oh, up a bunch oh, of things. Oh, <laughs> back back to the theme earlier of geometry that we were talking about, right? Yeah. It is actually important in the F-14 Tomcat because you guys, the swing wings, right? Mm. Right. He manipulates the wings. He demonstrates flexibility. Um, it, that that is called for in the moment that he needs to survive, and kind of that lesson that he's trying to teach 
um, rooster, right? Well, I guess the lesson in a certain way is, hey, rooster, don't overthink it. I want right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's a, when has that gotten anyone anything? You know, overthinking anything. I, I want to pitch an alternative uh, theory sure. of the the film to you, and that that is that it's kind of a reverse um, Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth is about choosing between the the good father and the bad father. You know, and he chooses the king. Uh, his um, I mean, the Hal who will become Henry the Fifth. Are you we know, talking about part one or part two or both? Well, sort of both the the okay. the saga. <laughs> the, Henry, you know. Henry the Fourth Maverick is what we're talking about. <laughs> the Hank CU, the Henry Extended Universe. Yeah, and when, right when, and he ends up choosing he ends up choosing to be king, you know, and and not choosing to sort of drink and carouse with Falstaff. And that that scene where he says, "Oh, I probably won't get this right," but like uh, he goes to Falstaff, he's like, "He's going to be king," you know. Falstaff is like, "Oh, now we're in good." You know, he shows up, presents himself to the king, and he says something like, I know thee not, old man, fall to thy prayers. Or some, he may even say, fall to your prayers, which is even more distancing. But the, the, this is a movie not about choosing the good or the bad father. It's about choosing the good or the bad legacy. Right. And the, the bad legacy would be to become a spaceman. You know, the, gra- the, the bad legacy is, is space oddity is like, here am I sitting in a Mach 10, uh, tin can far above the world, uh, far above the moon. Right. The, the ground control to major Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Ground control to major Tom Cruise requesting a flyby, uh, negative David Bowie. The pattern is full. And that, uh, you know, the, the good legacy is, is actually kind of passing it on to the to the next generation that happens in a couple of ways uh one is to kind of take responsibility for being a a surrogate father to rooster um the other is to teach right he says like i'm not a teacher you know at the at the end like of top gun you expect that like uh charlie and uh what's his first name pete are going to be um, are, you know, are going to be an item and like he returns to Top Gun to be an instructor. We learn in this that he, he sort of, uh, quit that after two months. He just wasn't good at it. I'm a, I'm a fighter pilot, a naval aviator. I'm not a teacher, you know, uh, and, uh, he has to learn to be a teacher and, and sort of learn to be a father or learn to kind of at least own his responsibility. And this is the, this is the good legacy. You know, he's, he's this sort of paterfamilias as the, the team lead on the run, the bombing run into, into wherever Stan, uh, and that like, that, that is his, uh, that's sort of thematically, um, that is sort of thematically where it is. So he's kind of choosing one, you know, it really is a multiverse of madness. You know, he's choosing, uh, uh, he, he's choosing what, what his, uh, what quantum reality he is going to pick and, and decide to live in. Yeah. I, I think in this, like, um, to me relates to something I was thinking about a lot, your point around his, his, learning to be a teacher um, reminds uh, me of the, like I thought about this in context of looking up the origin of the word Maverick. And I don't know if you guys know the origin of the word uh, Maverick. Um, It comes from passion fruit, orange, guava. (laughs) (laughs) Not pineapple. You sure it's not pineapple? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, um, No. So it's, it's named after. So Samuel Maverick, who is a Texas politician and cattle rancher who refused to brand his cattle. Um, and so this, this, and I think it's really interesting that Maverick had uses of meaning both the unbranded cattle as well as 
a someone who refuses to brand your cattle and do what um, everyone else is doing. And I, I think that, you know, in Top Gun, in the original Top Gun, Maverick is a Maverick. He is a, a unbranded cattle. And, you know, he's grappling with the legacy of his own father who died when he was very young. Um, and and then in um, Top Gun Maverick, he's going he's learning um to go from being a maverick to being the maverick, um, and uh, and then like surpassing that to actually going to brand your cattle, um, and and passing something on um, to that that next generation, right? And so it's it's really the the transformation of of the maverick in that um, in that journey, and then I, I think it's just like really uh, wasn't a little um, Easter egg that, that unraveled as I started uh, going down the you know dictionary rabbit hole. Excellent, um, I, Peter. You convinced by my uh, by my alternative reading of Top Gun, or is it is it still really a mythopoetical uh, story about the elements? Well, I mean, what I was talking about particularly was the visual vocabulary of the action sequences, mm. which I felt like was not the only dimension and and continuum on which the movie was operating. I mean, there's a lot of different planes of existence on which Top Gun Maverick proceeds, right? There, there's like um, the F-18, that's one plane. There's <laughs> yeah, like the, the F-14. Uh, yeah. Fifth generation yeah. fighters. Fifth generation plane. <laughs> right. Well, another one, I think I mentioned this one to you guys in planning as well, is that Top Gun Maverick is also sort of a uh, a, a hallmark movie, romantic comedy movie in the style of like a hot ghost comes back and falls in love with like a lonely older bartender who like, you know, has a single daughter and can't really make time for dating. Right. And like, he needs to do something before he can go to the other side again. And is he going to stick around or not? Uh, and I feel like I've seen that movie a bunch of times. Maybe you guys have, maybe you guys haven't. I searched my, I racked my brain for the example of this kind of movie that felt the closest to, uh, to what this movie was doing as a joke. It's, it's sort of it feels like a sort of self-referential joke that's being played on this movie in the idea of like Maverick, who's this cool guy from the 80s, has to come back to today. And you anticipate that he's going to be teaching all the kids to be cool. But it turns out all the kids are like super cool. and He doesn't need to do it and they don't need him. Uh, and, uh, and, and, oh, he needs to do this great thing in order to kind of achieve peace. But no, they don't need him to do it. They need him to run the, the course. Right. And then like let the other people do it. The movie that most struck me is called The Heavenly Kid. And it's a random movie from 85 about a, a greaser from the from the 50s or the 60s who comes back in the 80s and, and has to teach his like descendant to be cool. Uh, and and because uh, and part of what strikes me about it is the idea of like retro masculinity, like men today are soft. Men of the olden days were tough and had, you know, masculine virtue, which is something that goes all the way back to like what I mean. Obviously, Edward Gibbon, maybe, you know, probably Octavian at least. Right. And and probably all the way back to, uh, you know, bitchy confrontation between the Spartans and the Athenians, at least in terms of Western written culture. Right. The idea of like men now are soft men back in the day had virtue. Uh, and and so it, it kind of feels like that, too. And, and it feels like it pivots in and out of different subgenres. There'll be sort of wacky buddy cop moments. There'll be funny romantic comedy moments like when Maverick, you know, first when he throws his jacket out the window and everybody in theater thought he died, broken his neck. Uh, and then he jumped out of the window onto the ground and he confronts the little girl who caught him. Right. And uh, and he has to have that kind of scene. 
the scene where he like where Rooster tells him, you told me not to think. And that's why I came to save you in the woods. And it's like, oh, no, you know, this this feels like a goofy comedy right now. So I feel like one of the strengths of this movie, one of the reasons it feels so strong is that it does dwell in different in different within different explanations. Uh, and yeah. I don't think that these conflict with each other necessarily. Yeah, and I'm going to add one more on there, which is like the whole meta aspect about Tom Cruise, his acting career, and him being the last of a dying breed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, headed for extinction, you know, maybe maybe someday, sir, but not today, right? Yeah. He, is the, he is the last movie star, um, you know, the only one who can carry a movie, you know, kind of, you know, beyond franchise and intellectual property. Which I, I, you know, you feel like, you feel like, um, do you remember where that line is ripped off from, you know, because it's, it's one of the classics when, when, when Lursa and Betor challenge Gowron for, (laughs) (laughs) right. Welcome to my house. (laughs) For leadership of the Klingon high council, pludging the, in a two-parter with a cliffhanger, Worf resigns his commission in Starfleet to go fight, uh, alongside his brother on, uh, his brother Kern on a Klingon ship. And, uh, at the end, the sort of petulant cousin who they've, who they've sharked up, uh, in order to kind of be the focal point of this, uh, of this revolution or this civil war, you know, Klingon society being patriarchal, um, you know, spits in Garon's face in the chamber of the High Council and says, the Duras family will one day rule the Empire. And Gowron, the whites of his eyes flashing, says, perhaps, but not today. <laughs> and that is word for word <laughs> where the, where that line, I like, I had the strongest flashback to Star Trek The Next Generation when I, uh, when when I saw that, but it doesn't. It was a little bit. I feel like Chekhov's drone uh, drone aircraft was unfired in uh, in that. Like the idea that this is a showdown between Ed Harris and Tom Cruise over whether you know the human element is important in air combat. Like that that is not the. Um, I don't know. That's not the yeah. really the battlefield on which this. Because honestly, can you think of a better? candidate for a drone mission you know the the like the tightly controlled turns would be computer programmed the high g um you know almost vertical acceleration maneuver would not you know cause you to 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 faint or like have a stroke or whatever the the there's no better uh thing so you you'd think that like they kept trying we keep throwing drones at this problem and none of it can do it we need you maverick and like that's that's sort of not what it is. The, the, what the conflict in the film ends up being is, um, you know, the, the, uh, ends up being more of a kind of man versus self conflict, I guess, rather than a, you know, or man versus ham, uh, John ham, uh, conflict than, you know, than a man versus machine type of conflict. I mean, I absolutely love that bait and switch because huh. it's, it starts out and it's like, oh, we're going to be watching the Jamie Foxx movie Stealth, which I feel like I've seen like <laughs> six different times. I, I spent a non-trivial amount of time in the past few days since I've seen Top Gun Maverick trying to figure out whether one of the Iron Eagle movies also has this plot because I remember there being an Iron Eagle movie that had this plot. And, and 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 the internet tells me that no, I'm imagining it. So there's some like Lewis Gossett Jr. adjacent 90s fighter pilot movie about like 
kids getting recruited to fly drones uh, and it being this horrifying futuristic technology. But no, I just love the part where it's like, yeah, Tom Cruise, you're going to John Henry this, right? You're going to be the John Henry of spaceships uh, uh, after Jamie Foxx is done doing it. Um, <laughs> and, th- and then there's this sort of like, and, and then there's this inexorable gravity well, right? Because one of the other funny things about this movie is like, if Maverick is returning to the land of the living, his life entirely consists of the 1986 movie Top Gun and nothing outside of it. And so like all of the things that happen have to happen in some sort of orbit around this previous movie Top Gun. And that's just sort of the way the world is. And you just sort of see Ed Harris just get pulled into it. And he's just like, I've got to give you your dream assignment. I got to send you to Marine Station to go. You're going to Top Gun. And he gives like the same speech Right, that the principal from uh, Back to the Future, right, right gave gives, gives in the, James Tolkien, I guess, is that who it is, gives in the uh, in the first Top Gun movie, <laughs> and it just felt like such a wonderful like rug pull <laughs> of a like, uh, yeah, you thought you were going to watch this movie, but instead, you know, you're going to watch Top Gun because we can't help but make another Top Gun, and I just loved it. I'm sorry, I I took us a little far afield, right? Like, and, and, <laughs> well, no, and to the extent just. And it's just really interesting that, like, by the time they reach the point that, like, oh, this can't be done safely, right? And and Maverick is getting kicked out. John Hamm's solution is not let's go back to the drones. It's just we're going to do this so that everybody gets killed. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> odd, that, right? That like, uh, where's Ed Harris at that point? He's just like, all right, screw you guys. <laughs> He's making the RoboCop reboot, which is the same plot as well. <laughs> that, that's right. I was I was going to think about that as well. It's like that is the problem with the drones that they just keep bombing civilians, but they don't establish that, right? Like they don't establish why must we do this with uh, humans other than, well, we have to make the movie. <laughs> and well, no, no, they say there's no GPS, that the GPS is all jammed, right? And so they can't uh, right. use yeah. satellite yeah. navigation, which yeah, is right. like, it's, it's like they lampshade it. <laughs> a little, like, I mean, a yeah. little bit. It's like, it's like the phone running out of battery in every horror movie, you know, you, you yeah. need, I guess you need a way to, you need a, uh, uh, what you need, like the wind chill factor, you know, uh, it's yeah. not that cold. Yeah. But with the wind chill factor with the GPS jammer, it's freezing. <laughs> it's Look, freezing. All I can there. say is that the enemy cannot push a button. If you disable his hand. All right. There was a clear solution. To this problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do think, you know, it is interesting. And I think that we haven't, one thing we haven't spoken about is the, the, the real uh, uh, departure of this film from the original Top Gun is that there is a lot more, footage of the actors flying the airplanes and you, you see and feel that, you know, the, that um, it is such a physical act and it is this relationship between man and machine. And, um, and it, it made me think like, you know, that the other genre that this is, it, it felt more like even like a sports movie than the first one. Um, and especially because it's, you know, they have a team and they have to learn to work as a team um, and they have a routine, right? It's like almost like it's like it feels like it's a movie about like like team gymnastics. Like, I don't know if there was ever like a movie about like the Carrie Strug. Oh, the Carrie Strug. Yeah. Or like, yeah. Or like, I don't know. Right. Or like, like, um, 
like the cutting edge, right? Like it's, <laughs> it feels like, right? Like it felt like a little bit like a figure skating routine. Um, cause they kept, we, we like at this point, I bet like we all watched this movie. We could probably talk through the order of moves in this run. Um, cause like right before the, and we had heard and seen it many times. And then they did like one more refresher right before the mission of like, all right, here's what you're going to see. Right. And it, it felt like I was like, there should have been a voiceover of um, like Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski being like, oh, oh, he missed the turn at the waterfall. That's going to be a four tenths deduction, <laughs> right? Because it is such a, a level of of precision, but it's very different than um, like you know or the original Top Gun. It's like their annual academy of like really topping up the top um, of the the navy naval aviators and kind of giving skilling them up to go back into their battalions. And this is much more like you know, flight camp for the big, for the big bomb meet. Right. And, yeah. and so it really makes, and they, the big lesson is that they have to like, I mean, I'm surprised they didn't just like form the flying V and um, I guess, right. I guess it's, uh, it, uh, there's no duck, right. So they can't go quack, quack, quack. They can go hog, hog, <laughs> so you're saying this should be called Top Gun Planes of Glory, right? Or something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, because because who they blow up, like the, the first Top Gun movie, who who if who they blow up is a question that needs to be answered at all. In the first movie, its answer the answer is this a Cold War answer, wherein there is a nebulous enemy, it is everywhere, it doesn't follow the rules, and will eventually slip up, and then you will get to like shoot back when they shoot you when they're curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal, right? Um, in this one, though, yeah, I was trying to wonder why I didn't feel bothered so much by them blowing these people up, and then I was like, well, yeah, because it, what I thought was it feels like a ski movie. <laughs> like exactly yeah <laughs> like, exactly they have to like they what if they have to save the youth center like in that south park episode by winning the big ski competition right would, would the movie be any different if those were the stakes well, instead and, of and hangman is totally like the bad guy in an 80s ski movie right um yeah. it's like that's his like he's like you're a dweeb <laughs> <laughs> but he turns around and helps the good guys at the last minute and shows <laughs> right, right right part right. of gold right because the bad skiers do have missiles <laughs> <laughs> So can we use this as an opportunity to talk about the geopolitics in this movie or perhaps the lack there? Yeah, I don't want to talk about how this movie is a Cialis commercial. So, yeah, go about that. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise is nearly 60 years old, you know, <laughs> nearly 60 <laughs> years old. I mean, that's the that was the thing about all the erging and the uh, 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 of this the sports movie aspect of of it uh, that you all identified. Right. Like his body really could not take the, the the you know physical toll that doing this kind of flying would take but yes absolutely let's talk about wherever stand mark sure okay so just first of all like it kind of doesn't matter for reasons that we've been circling around which is that this movie is very um focused on a tight little universe of the pilots and their Internal struggles and, of course, you know, what we talked about before with the, the relationship between Maverick and Rooster and kind of this father-son reconciliation bit. Um, beyond that, though, the movie is this kind of military power – a very specific military power fantasy. It's like, hey, what if we had these amazing fighter planes and what awesome thing could we do with it? And can we just kind of like concoct a reason to do this amazing, exhilarating, awesome thing? And it's like, well, yes. Yes, we can. Um, and 
all of the the broader implications of that, right? The general public, the military industrial complex, elected officials, the broader national security complex, even other military branches, right? Are just like not there at all. Um, it's, it's a pretty remarkable um, act of restraint for this movie. I mean, it, you know, it, it is, it was there, the similar restraint was there in, in the original movie. Um, it, is a, it is a strong choice of admission to not include it here. Now, that being said, Right. There are strong illusions of this being Iran. Um, and a couple of things in particular. One, of course, is the nuclear program. Right. It's like, hey, they're going to enrich this uranium. We really can't have that happen. That'd be super bad, you guys. Um, and the other being the existence of F-14 Tomcats in their arsenal, because um, just a brief history lesson here. Right. The United States helped arm. Uh, the Iranian government, the Shah's regime in Iran before the Islamic Revolution um, uh, happened and became not friends with them anymore. So Iran, yes, their Air Force, I believe, um, I don't know if they're still active. They're so old. Um, but um, at, at some point, the Iranian Air Force actively had active F-14 Tomcats there. So that aside, though, I mean, there's plenty of other like small and big things which like, no, no, this isn't Iran. Like, you know, between I don't know, the, the snow, I can't speak to, but in particular, right, the fifth generation fighters. Iran does not have uh, the super like is it a, some SU-53 or, or some like that um, uh, class of like the latest and greatest Russian um, Russian fighter jet. Um, so, like, you know, it, it's kind of it's, it's Iran enough so that like, let's put it this way, if you um really uh that type of had those type of political beliefs where you're like oh iran is super dangerous and man wouldn't it be great if we could just bomb iran and uh you know take that and use our amazing military prowess and like just uh uh, put them put iran in their place like sure that power fantasy is there for you um if you don't have those political views uh and you see this more as a fantasy i think which is what probably would describe most of us on this panel or if all of us on this panel um then yeah we're going to take that tack as well um, so that's like kind of my read on the geopolitics or lack thereof in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this a lot, but almost just from a more just not even the geopolitics, just the geo of it all, um, the geography of like I was even just stumped. It's it feels unlikely to go from water to snowy mountains in right that like two and a half minutes um that you have to go and so there is a little bit of a that then they're going mach the 10 right that is true that is true <laughs> no, it, that is well, not true what are you talking about <laughs> yeah, that's true that's they're true. going that's mach 10 every aircraft in this film is going mach, mach 10, 10. The, four lights <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true i agree with you i agree with that statement um well there but there is like and there were calculations that in iran you can get from um sea to to snowy mountains in about four minutes um the, the, based on at the uh airspeed that they're that they're going um and so that's like that's compelling as well i think it's important for thinking about you know, in terms of where might this be, just thinking about like what it mean, what Top Gun means, what being a naval aviator means, because what it, being a naval aviator means, and this comes in on the uh, the boat scene um, with the uh, in which you know he's like really like out of his depth on a boat, <laughs> trying to drive a boat, and she's like, "I thought you were in the navy." He's like, "I I just land on them," uh, and this this idea of you know Top Gun being important. Um, is is contingent on 
military threats and kind of projection of military power being places that boats can get to or places that can you could get to from a plane that's like launching off of a boat right and you know the in kind of and i'm i'm not a military historian but like you know you think about large the rise of um, naval aviation. You think about the Pacific Theater of World War II, um, the Korea War, um, and then and and Vietnam. And um, and if you guys remember, there's a brief aside about this in um, in the first Top Gun when they first arrive at, at Top Gun. Um, they they there's this brief backstory of like the uh, this is the real origin of of Top Gun, which was um, and it's on that title card that starts both movies that it, it started in the late 60s in 69, and it was at the early stages of um you know in the vietnam conflict the um i think it was called like the kill ratio of the ratio of uh enemy planes um uh shot down to u.s um planes shot down um like really went in a bad direction it's like korea it was something like 12 to 1 or 13 to 1 so uh, u.s shot down 13 enemy planes for every one that was lost and in the early stages of vietnam it was three to one um and so the top gun was the um the the Navy's response, uh, rather than investing in in equipment, which I think um, I've read is the route that the Air Force took, um, the um, the Navy invested in tactics and Top Gun of really kind of training fighter pilots in um, in in aerial combat maneuvering. Um, it was was the response, and so that kind of elite status. I mean, it's it's interesting to even think by the time that the first Top Gun rolls around, there's not an act of war, right? It's not Vietnam. It's kind of the, you know, the general, like, you know, spread of the Cold War, right? And they're just, they're they're fighting MiGs above the Indian Ocean. Um, and it's it's kind of, um, but it's not, and, and the Maverick is not of the Vietnam generation. He's kind of of this generation in between. And we're, at least at the time of the filming, right, it's, it's also... It is interesting, you know, Pete. You were mentioning like all all Maverick lived is like the plot of Top Gun, but it, it's mentioned in an aside that he flew in both Gulf Wars. Like he, <laughs> he basically right, like while while everyone else, um, you know, was climbing the ladder and um, you know moving into administrative positions, he actually fought in like every war in the post Cold War era, <laughs> um, and just like kept just kept flying and just kept doing that um, and. Uh, um, and 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 so it's just like an interesting to think about, you know, why I was thinking about where might this be. I, I think just for me raised, you know, what is the role of of Top Gun in today's world, right? And 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 this kind of a, a fight, not even with the kind of being replaced by drones, but you know, is there, you know, are we in a place where um, Bodhi plane threats are salient or not? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to answer that yeah. question, partially, at least, like, you know, um, we've, as we've seen in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right, you know, maintaining, exactly. establishing yeah. and maintaining air superiority over a conventional theater of operations is super important. And Russia and totally control, failed to do right? it. Poor control, like, uh, thinking about Maripol, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to add a little bit to the discussion about where it is, it felt to me like the architecture of the bridges was <laughs> either neo-Byzantine-Russian or German uh, Rundbogenstel, uh, which is like round art style, uh, 19th century German Romanesque revival. 
from the shape of the arches that they were flying under. But the more I think about it, the more I feel like they might have put that bridge in there in order to provide cover that it's not Iran. Right. Mm. It's, it's like it's like everything <laughs> about this makes it feel like it's Iran. Let's put in a Soviet bridge. Right. <laughs> and, and, and they have to, like, fly through this very this concrete, you know, like Stalin era Gothic Soviet bridge to get to this secret air base, which, of course, like will just lampshade the fact that there are American air, airplanes that are there because really we're going back to the past and people will think that it's some place having to do with the Cold War. Uh, and, and then we won't have to associate it with a real place at all. Um, so it's it's weird to think about the role. Of, well, I mean, it goes back. It's the, we're, we talk so much about, you know, Baudrillard. Right. And uh, hyper reality. And, you know, the Gulf War didn't didn't exist. Right. That's the name of his book, I think. Is that what it was called? The Gulf War never happened. The Gulf War didn't exist. The idea that the wars that you experience on television aren't the wars that are happening in real life. Uh, and there's this whole sort of fiction that people uh, associate with uh, when it comes to these historical events and particularly the nature of, of sort of military presence, you know, experience and intervention in these places. Uh, and Top Gun is like chief among all of these things, I would imagine, right? Because I feel like Top Gun made a lot of people feel better about Vietnam, which, like, it didn't happen in real life, so it's strange that it would do that, right? But <laughs> it kind of did, which is horrifying and strange, uh, but also, like, kind of makes sense, you know, in terms of uh, what the sort of imagination, you know, if it's an injury to the, if you don't actually care about what happened to the real people anyway, and you're mostly concerned about the injury to your soul that the story that you heard did, right, then, then, you know, you might be looking for a cure for the soul rather than a cure for the material conditions that were inflicted upon the world by the situation. Right. And the way um, I think it's just, I, I think it's well established that after Top Gun came out, like military recruitment, just like when uh, the movie had a highly positive effect. On military recruitment numbers. And yeah, and probably on general favorability towards the, you know, if you were to poll people, general favorability towards the U.S. armed forces. I mean, the way that works, Pete, the way that the process you're, you're, uh, you know, describing works is by like sort of excising the part of you that might be worried about, uh, worried about history and reinserting, like replacing it with, uh, you know, an emphasis on the fact that airplanes are awesome. And uh, you know. I thought you were going to make a volleyball joke right there. <laughs> no, it's that airplanes are awesome. Like there, there is you know, it's it's very difficult to make an anti-airplane movie because airplanes are so exciting. <laughs> I mean, the experience of, of Vietnam for most people wasn't real either. Is you know, if you weren't in Vietnam, right? Even though it doesn't mean that only the bad thing, only the good things are fake. A lot of the bad things are fake too. I, yeah, I mean, a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people were there, and a lot of people live there, right? And like. But yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot, a, yeah. lot of, a lot of people got their villages napalmed, and then a lot of uh, a lot of soldiers got uh, you know <laughs> traumatized in in the worst way possible by their their involvement there, and then got, got come home and got spit on by hippies. But that, yeah, uh, to the, to them, I guess a little bit of it was real. But yeah, yeah, it was. If if you weren't, if you were one of the you know hundreds of millions of people, not uh, Americans, not there. 
I guess, or I actually don't know what the population was at that time, but that, that like, uh, yeah, it's, it, it was a story that you heard. It was a, it was a kind of relentless drumbeat, um, on the, uh, on the, the news every night. I, I just wanted to, to make, make the point that this film really kind of, you know, continues the strategy of, of the kind of kinetic, the, the idea that it's awesome to move fast, you know, it's awesome mm-hmm. to move fast in planes. Like the faster we can go, the better like Mach 10 is okay but let's hit Mach 10.3 you know it's uh it's good to like sail in a fast boat on a on a windy day it just feels good and it's great to ride a motorcycle though I feel duty bound to say that uh California has a helmet law uh, yes, that, thank you, Matt. <laughs> yeah, you can't. If anyone wants to ride a motorcycle, I'm right. That I'm happy to ride with you, but uh, please wear uh, a uh, please wear a helmet, um, and then also other safety gear that that Tom Cruise doesn't wear. I would like you to wear a jacket uh, that has you know some kind of reinforcement in it, especially you know at the shoulders and elbows and and uh, along your back. I'd like you to wear gloves uh, that are resistant to impact and to abrasion i'd really like you to uh to gear up for that but yeah the 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 revving the the awesome the awesome um sound of those those jet engines or the revving of the motorcycle or the you know the crashing of the ocean drowning out that sort of that drumbeat of of anxiety from the you know bad bad news you hear uh about uh, about the military also Drowning out that drum beat, this sound. Bong. <laughs> um, did anyone hear? Uh, you know, Christina and I saw this in the theater and we like looked at each other when we heard the bell and we had like a moment of like satisfaction and connection that like, ah, ah, yes, there is the bell. And, and it's used to good effect a couple times, not just, not just at the outset in the, in the kind of shot for shot remake. Um, part of the uh uh of the film the um but but uh, a couple times later sort of at moments of at moments of not exactly of apotheosis but at moments of decision you know where yeah. where things are you know you uh moments of resolution i should say when people resolve to to uh do something i don't know mark you want to get in on this one yeah well i mean go back to the heaven and earth um theme a little bit right you know it, it's it, it is i think evocative for me at least of a church bell Right, mm. especially at the beginning of the movie, dong. Right, this is a uh, you know a a religious call to prayer, to ritual. Um, like you know, let us prepare together to ascend to the heavens to talk to God. Um, later on in the movie, I felt um, the bell almost took on like a funereal the tone, mm-hmm. uh, especially because you know they are pondering sending these young pilots uh, into harm's way and and coming face to face with the prospect of death. That was my read on the, on, the, on the sound of the bells. It doesn't really track well. I, I can't the, the the bell at the bar that they ring very boisterously doesn't exactly track into that theory. But that that's it for like kind of like those more serious, like not diegetic, but soundtrack bongs. Well, the bell. I mean, you know, send send not to know know for who the bell tolls. You know, right? Yeah. Like I, the 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 bell is about. I mean, the church bell is about what mortality, and it's about you know obligation. It's about like. Um, 
uh, uh, duty, right? And the bar, it, it, the barbell is good because the barbell kind of repeats that in sort of a comic register, right? Like the, you can think of the bell as happening, you know, uh, to, to commemorate a vow, you know, the, the, the vow to like, um, you, you know, fulfill your duty and put yourself in, in harm's way to achieve a military mission, uh, to achieve a military objective or, or, you know, in a comic register, the vow to buy everyone a drink. At the, <laughs> you know, at the 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 bar, and actually, there is a there is a uh, I'm not just joking. Like there is a slight slightly profound aspect to that, which is that the obligation is not voluntary. You know, to buy to buy the drink, it is thrust. Uh, look, I'm saying that some some are born with bar tabs, some achieve bar tabness, and some have bar tabs thrust upon them by uh, by Jennifer by Jennifer Connolly. Uh, Pete, does does the bell toll for thee? <laughs> I mean, it tolls for everybody, right? Uh, I, yeah, I would say the bell for me was judgment would be the word I would use. The bell signifies judgment. And there was a particular – there's two other moments about the bell I'd love to touch on. One, I, I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly, maybe a little off. But when uh, Rooster is flying and kind of – and you can see from the perspective of the fifth-generation fighter that's tracking him – Right. I think it's the fifth generation fighter. It might be another time than Rooster being shot at. The reticule is uh, starting to make its way up towards his plane. Right. At which point he will be shot and killed. And the bell rings. Right. Uh, in the soundtrack, the non-diegetic bell rings. And it's this bell of like, you know, the time has come for Rooster. He's going to die. And then I believe this is the point where Hangman kills the pilot like kills the plane that's going to kill them. And then the bell sounds again because the, the judgment has been passed and it hasn't been passed on rooster. It's been passed on the other guy. And the bell at the beginning of top gun is this really, when you think, when you think about the power that it represents, it's basically saying, look, don't be scared about life and death. We control life and death, right? Like, like we can kill the other people. Uh, and we will kind of live in that space, um, and we will be the arbiters of life and death. Uh, even as such, we have to face it ourselves. Like the bell, like I am the one who knocks, right? I am the one who locks on target, right? Like I am not, you know, I, they are not the danger. I am the danger, right? Um, another example of this that felt, I mean, related, he's, you know, yeah. he's he's rooster. Like I am, I am the terror that clucks in the night. <laughs> Do you think no one ever mentions that his name means cock, right? Uh, but at any rate, I, like, <laughs> I'll say I read something on the internet about that was one of these like a real uh, a real naval aviator fact checks the you know which is a genre of YouTube video now. Um, the uh, the your your call sign is not meant to be awesome. It's meant to like haze you forever with some like embarrassing thing that you did, and it's it's bestowed. It's not like selected uh, for awesomeness, at least according to this this you know unattributed. Source you know that, that, that probably in. explains the two pilots that are nicknamed Harvard and Yale. Well, right, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that seems more that seems more like it. Like okay, Harvard, you know, like right. uh, ra- they're pretentious ra- know what else. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, they they. Right. They, uh, you know, I don't know what went to went through ROTC instead of going to the Naval Academy or something like that, that like, uh, yeah, OK, OK, Harvard. Um, but that like uh, the the call signs were too awesome. And this was taken as a sign that the, the uh, thing was not not, uh, you know, realistic enough call sign. Yeah. And, the, and, and then the other the other 
bell moment where the bell is is not literally used and it's a diegetic sound effect is when coyote is passing passing out and uh maverick needs to wake coyote up and in order to wake him up to the reality of a situation he locks on target which causes the missile tone to go off right the missile lock tone goes off which wakes up which rouses coyote from his kind of passing out status and gets him to correct himself and that feels similar it's like the bell is ringing buddy the bell is ringing right um and and the idea that tom cruise is both the person who is administering the bell or maverick is administering the bell but also fears and respects the bell and the bell is a warning for others you know it's a winter is coming kind of thing right it's it's a warning it's a caution for me and it's a warning for you um, i don't know ryan do you have anything else on bells yeah, I, I, in fact, I do. Um, just uh, one more uh, that we didn't quite hit on is the use of bells in timekeeping on ships, right? And there is a specific system of pattern of bells um, that are used, but then there are also ceremonial um, usage of of bell ringings on a ship's bell, right? So on naval vessels um, that they're rung as, I think, like boat gongs. So basically it is rung um, for like dignitaries coming aboard the ship. Um, and then the other thing is that when a sailor dies, um, they can be honored by ringing the bell eight times. Um, and so and, and it means like end of the watch, right? And so actually getting back to winter is coming, right? It's, it's also a, and now his watch is ended. It would be amazing to do a count of how many bells um, show up in the movie. Are there eight bells? Um, and and who who is getting the eight bell treatment? So I just think that's a another um bit of um you know resonance uh so to speak of the bells i mean tony scott is getting the eight bell treatment probably right that like uh you know that the (laughs) uh uh, director of the of the first film um and uh and they're also they're also i mean speaking of these rituals there's a a sort of uh, what is it? Missing man airplane formation that happens at Iceman's funeral and also at uh, sort of at the end, the very end when it says in memory of Tony Scott with where um, uh, Tom Cruise is flying his I can't remember the, the name of the plane P-51. I want to say, and, uh, you know, he flies off into the sunset, but then like it, the, the aircraft reappears and like flies off to the side. I, I, if memory serves, that is like a, uh, you know, a sort of missing man, like, um, air formation and has a, has a ceremonial meaning. And it's, it's sort of given to Iceman and, and to, uh, to Tony Scott at the end of the, uh, at the end of the film. Overthinking it, listeners are at an advantage watching Top Gun Maverick because we covered the Val Kilmer documentary Val, and Val Kilmer is the Paul Walker of this movie, right? Yeah. Where we're like, if you have this information about Val Kilmer's real life, then his appearance in this movie takes on a very different significance. And it's assumed, I th- well, it's probably not assumed. I think if, from what I've read online, there were people who didn't know about Val Kilmer's situation with his cancer and his loss of his voice. I heard someone on um, a po- I heard someone on a podcast like talk about it like why you know why is he even there wearing his cravat? It's like he he's wearing the cravat because he has like a port installed in his neck that you know the 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 man has been very seriously ill. He he is still living. He's he's unlike oh, yeah. Paul Walker in that sense. Uh, Val, you know, uh Kilmer lives. Yeah, but he lost. But but as in the Valve documentary goes into, he's lost his voice. And as such, he's sort of lost part of himself because he can't be that movie star anymore. 
uh, that he was. And that doesn't necessarily mean I can't be famous. I can't make movies. He just you get the sense that it's it's been really crushing for him and his identity. And uh, I mean, we, we encourage people to watch that documentary again. I think it was really good. But I mean, how we how did you guys feel seeing Val Kilmer on screen in this movie? Uh, what did what did you what did it inspire you with uh, playing Iceman? They're getting thanked by Tom Cruise, sort of like this. This wouldn't have I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you, which also feels like, hey, Val Kilmer, I know that I became a huge global superstar for my entire life. And you kind of made Willow and Tombstone. And that's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but Val, I want to acknowledge Val Kilmer, one of the takeaways from the 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 Val movie was that Val Kilmer was like an uh, an avant garde performance artist who was you know who really like uh was sort of cursed with with being extraordinarily handsome you know and and like couldn't it is a movie he made himself yes. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, 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 exactly, exactly. The well, I mean, did he make it himself? It had two other directors, but I guess it was largely footage that he shot himself using his like, you know, VHS VHS video camera. And I'm sure his spirit hovered over the the producing of it so that like they wouldn't give a message. But like you you got the sense that like his he did all these like pretty boy action star. Well, not all of them, but he did enough of them to be identified with it. And and like it was not. uh, maybe, maybe where his, his heart was. I don't know. I felt, it felt sort of, tri- uh, triumphal for me to see Val Kilmer. I think that we, like, the, the people who are disabled or who are infirm or, you know, who, who are old, like, we either, we either make them look 20, like we've done with Tom Cruise somehow, or we just sort of shuff, shuffle them off the stage, like, uh, Kelly McGillis, not in this, not in this movie. Um, the, uh, you know, she looks like a normal person. Um, Fifty-one-year-old uh, Jennifer Connelly does not look like, you know, uh, is yeah, is take it whatever her skincare regime is. I want, I want to know what it is. And to me, I, 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 I don't know. I always appreciate. I mean, I guess it, it sounds like I'm, I'm this is like an empty virtue signaling, but like I always appreciate when, when we take time to look at someone who is not, who doesn't sort of fit the young Val Kilmer mold, including you know old Val Kilmer. I I I feel like uh, there's there's something important with representation that happens when you know when when someone who is uh, who is ill, who's you know uh, disabled, who is you know uh, differently shaped, you know gets a uh, gets a chance to be on on film. I don't know what what anyone else thought about it. Yeah, I mean, I will say when he made that take toward the screen. You know, pointed at the screen, like, read the thing that I typed again. And the whole theater laughed. I was like, man, that is I hope that feels good because it shows how good he is at this, that even after his you know, cancer has taken his voice, he can still act in a big screen movie and like get a big laugh in a packed IMAX theater uh, just with his finger and his and his eyes. Right. Um, I was really impressed by that. Wait, um, IMAX but, yeah. theater. Were you at Jordan's? Jordan's furniture reopened for Top Gun Maverick. It was amazing. Laser 4K IMAX. The the butt kicker is a state of the art. Right, it's the subwoofers, subwoofers under your chair. It was so great to be there. I was crying just for the movie theater, uh, and then the movie made me cry as well. Oh so. yeah, yeah. Weep, weep openly in the yeah. uh, in the in the movie theater. Um, you you have uh, you have anything for Iceman, Mark? Oh, just thinking about how. The scene did a couple things for me. One is that um, it shows how remarkable, uh, how remarkably well Tom Cruise has resisted the effects of aging 
to this point, at this point, right? You know how um, you know he has defied gravity at least in that regard. But also, like you know, mortality is coming for him too, right? Old age is coming for him. As, as impossible as it is to fathom, right? You know, he will become, you know, old past his prime, older, you know, mentor, mentor figure, like you know, in in a real in that in that uh, real more infirm kind of way, not uh, in the joking kind of way as he or in, in this movie. Um, it. Uh, yeah, my mind is having a is having a hard time. He's fifty. Imagine what it's going to be like. It will happen someday. It has to, right? I, 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 at this point, maybe I'm asking for validation here that old age will come for Tom sure, Cruise as well. Sure. I mean, I yeah, absolutely. I mean, as it will for uh, as it will for all of us. But the the like the thing that's amazing to me is that he's fifty nine and not the like not the necessarily the way he looks, the way his sort of skin looks youthful. Like a lot of that can be done with like movie magic, you know. And I did you guys get the opening sh- the like welcoming thing from Tom Cruise before before the film? Did they play that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where he like like, welcome to the theater. We made it for the big screen. You know, we're glad that you're here. We did it. We did it for you. Um, that like he looked noticeably different between that and between between that and the you know the the shots in the film. So I, I think there is a little movie magic, but like it's that he's it's that he has that energy. Like I, the, it's just I can't describe it but like this guy's a movie star you know where he just commands attention and and was not i was uh, tom cruise i think is susceptible to a little bit of of poking fun at him because usually he's so intense but like he he had a lot more of a relaxed aspect at this and to me if anything it made him more uh, it made him more watchable. Anyway, we're, we're way over time. Ryan, we always give our, uh, our, you know, least frequent, uh, podcasting guests the, the last word, uh, until I interrupt them. Do, would you like to say anything about Iceman, about Tom Cruise, about your skincare routine, about mortality coming for us all? Well, I, I think the only other thing in, in the other appearance of Tom Cruise before the movie started was in the trailer for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. Um, <laughs> um, and I was just like, uh, um, and it was just as like odd. It was like all Tom Cruise all the time because it's just like, it's not like he just like, it's like, you know, if he had done Top Gun Maverick, Dayenu, but like here he is now doing even like it does make like the just the trailer for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning part one makes uh top gun maverick seem so chill by comparison <laughs> and seeing just seeing that trailer in imax was like man this is the most intense thing i've done in a long time <laughs> um and I, I could have left like the the theater like sweaty and exhilarated just after that trailer um but yeah so he's he's still going because there needs i mean i assume that mission impossible dead reckoning part one is like part one of seven i i hope <laughs> i can only hope that this is a a 14 hour magnum opus uh of the uh and, and that he will complete when he's like 90 it's actually um, uh, it's directed by matthew barney it's a sequel to the crew master <laughs> yeah, cycle. the cruise master cycle yeah, yeah the, scal- <laughs> the, the, the scal- cycle yeah the cruise yeah, master yeah, yeah, cycle yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, uh, obviously, we love the film. Like, uh, we'd love to know what you think in the comments or on uh, on the Overthinking It Discord. Uh, thanks very much for listening to us talk about Top Gun Maverick. Thanks very much to Mark, to Pete, to Ryan. Uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you anytime. All right. Well, uh, that's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. So, Matt, can I towel myself off now or put my shirt back on? And what do you want me to do with this Nerf football? No, more oil. Pour more Where, oil oh, more? on your body. Do yep. you really think that they're going to hear the difference on the podcast that we're all oiled up and throwing around these Nerf footballs, Frisbees, Aerobees, and volleyballs? I can hear the <laughs> glistening coming off of your pectorals. And if it's if it's not shining, you know? It should be. Look, it sh- look, for the previous 700 episodes, you're just nonstop squabbling with all of each other. But now that we played that the Nerf football on the beach, now we're a team. Ha, ha, ha.